0: Hi. Hey. Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, a non-denominational evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. See, I was working for a non-denominational student church, When a pastor asked me the question, what's more important, scripture or tradition? To answer that question, I had to dig deep into church history, into my understanding of the scriptures and who Jesus said he was and what he was doing and what the church he founded was all about. That journey is chronicled in the first episode of this podcast. But what it taught me because inevitably i bumped up against the catholic church in that journey and i realized pretty quickly that what i thought i knew about catholics what i thought catholics believed was based in large measure on misunderstandings and misinformation when i began to read about the catholic church from catholic historians and catholic authors and catholic theologians i realized that what i understood was wrong This podcast serves to fill in that gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. I sit down every week with real Catholic thinkers to talk about real Catholic topics from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, part one of an incredible two-part interview is fantastic. I'm joined by Paul McCusker. If you grew up as an evangelical, or if you were an evangelical parent, during a certain period of time, you might not know the name Paul McCusker, but you'll certainly be familiar with the radio drama Adventures in Odyssey. Or maybe the serialized Chronicles of Narnia audiobooks. Or my favorite, the Father Gilbert Mysteries. These productions, these staples of wholesome evangelical Christian entertainment, from the well-known Focus on the Family organization, were the brainchild of Paul McCusker. His work is prolific, full of Christian morality and the message of Christ, and it speaks for itself. And Paul McCusker is a convert to the Catholic faith. He joins me today in what turned out to be an absolutely incredible interview to talk about how that all happened. This is, I said, part one of a two-part interview, and if you want immediate, instant access to the second part of this incredible interview, please head over to patreon.com cordialcatholic cordial catholic. It will, of course, come out next week for everyone else, but patrons get early access as a thank you for even a $1 per month donation. That's patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. This podcast is brought to you by Select International Tours. Have you considered how a pilgrimage might bolster the faith of your parish? Do you have a group of 10 people or more that might travel on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land? Guadalupe, the shrines of France, Italy, Ireland, Eastern Europe, or follow in the footsteps of Paul in Greece? If you do, then you should definitely check out Select International Tours. They have helped thousands of people organize pilgrimages for the last 33 years, and they want to help you plan yours. Visit selectinternationaltours.com slash cordial to learn more. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic interview, part one, with Paul McCusker. Please listen and enjoy. Hi, friends, and welcome back to the Cordial Catholic. I am so thrilled to be joined this week by Paul McCusker. Paul is a writer and dramatist best known for his work on the long-running children's audio program Adventures in Odyssey and the award-winning Focus on the Family radio theater series. His other audio production work includes The Legends of Robin Hood for the Augustine Institute, which won the 2018 Audi Award for Best Audio Drama. He has a number of other additional audio drama work you may be familiar with, including The Chronicles of Narnia, Christmas Carol, uh, Oliver Twist, The Screwtape Letters, and a bunch of other fantastic original productions, including my favorite, The Father Gilbert Mysteries as well as a number of more recent productions for the Augustan Institute, including Brother Francis, The Barefoot Saint of Assisi, The Trials of St. Patrick, and An Ode to St. Cecilia. Paul's other work includes written, published works, including the new first reader series, The Adventures of Sam and Nick, and a number of other mysteries and thrillers and biographies and plays and even musicals as well. Paul is currently the Senior Director of Creative Content for the Augustine Institute in Denver. Paul, I am so excited to have you join me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here, and hello.
1: Thanks. It's great to be with you.
0: <laughs> I'm really excited to have you uh, on the line and have this conversation I think it's gonna be an incredible one I don't want to ramble along or solidilologize or, uh, or t- too much but I do want to share with you a, a short story to start with and then we can dig into the questions because I think this story illustrates uh two things very well um First, I think the impact your stories have had in the course of your writing career, and second, I think the impact of your own personal story, your conversion to Catholicism, that we'll dig into here. Um, my wife and I are both converts to the Catholic Church. I grew up in a non-religious household and got saved around the age of 15 into an evangelical faith tradition, and about 15 years later I became Catholic. Now, my wife grew up in a strong Evangelical Baptist household and grew up surrounded by stuff like your Adventures and Odyssey series and the Chronicles of Narnia, which she said is still one of those things that reminds her so strongly of the Christmas season. Because growing up near the Canada-U.S. border, every Christmas, this Evangelical radio station across the border would broadcast that series. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think even, I think this is correct if I, if I think back about this, I think even our, our first big road trip as a newly married couple, it may have actually been on our honeymoon, for all I know, out on the BC coast. We listened to your Father Gilbert radio dramas <laughs> the whole way. So <laughs> like, you know, when we first, when we both became Catholic, um, maybe we'll touch on this later, uh, maybe not, but there's this certain sense of loneliness I mean, you found this pearl of great price, but you've also left behind, in a sense, these things that you love and treasure and that formed you. And of course, we always had the intention of raising our kids on Adventures and Odyssey and your Narnia productions, but we lamented the fact that there weren't comparable dramas and stories like these from a Catholic worldview. So I'll tell you what, when I noticed that Michael Barber, he's a colleague of yours at the Augustan Institute... Mm -hmm. had written something about this Robin Hood series on Facebook, and somebody else commented and said something to the effect of, hey, isn't that the Adventures in Odyssey guy? And someone else said, yes, he became a Catholic a number of years ago, and he's producing this great Catholic content. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what, no exaggeration, Paul. I ran down the stairs. I tripped on the way down the stairs. I'm okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I grabbed my phone, and I wrote to my wife in all caps, you wouldn't believe what I just heard. (laughs) Now, all that to say, Paul, I'm so happy to have you join me today, because your stories and your own story, there's a lot to be grateful for here, and as an evangelical Christian, now as a Catholic, I am excited to share this conversation with you, and I think that there'll be a lot of people in our audience that are excited, like I am, to hear this as well, so thank you so much
1: for being here. Oh yeah, well thank you. thank you for that story. I'm glad you didn't hurt yourself on the way down the stairs though. That's, that that uh, that would have been an awful version of the story where you broke your leg trying to tell your wife about something like that. But yeah. Oh, I think it would have been worth it. <laughs> All right. So, uh, I
0: think it's safe to say that your fantastic work has obviously been hugely influential for just so many people, children and young people especially growing up. I wonder if you can start by talking to us about your own childhood and faith background as a kid. What was your experience of faith, if any, growing up? And was there a catalyst of some kind uh, as you grew up that made you start to take your faith on as your own?
1: Well, yeah, I, we, my mom, uh, it's funny, we were a mixed background. My mom um, was essentially raised Methodist. And then my dad um was uh catholic though hard to discern what what that was for him and for his family whether that was um uh cultural catholicism or if it was something that was faith-based at the deepest level it's not for me to judge that but um so we were a bit of a mixed family though um my mom adamantly refused to raise us catholic uh, and, uh, my dad was fine to go along with that. So we were raised in a Protestant and then primarily an evangelical Protestant background. Um, I was actually baptized or christened, I should say, as a Presbyterian. And I know we went to Methodist churches. We, we were kind of the Heinz 57 variety of, <laughs> of evangelicalism. Uh, until we finally, my mom settled in. She was determined we would go to church and, uh, we moved to a place called Bowie, Maryland, and settled into uh, Baptist, more or less. So my formative years were were spent as a Baptist, and uh, and I have to admit, I there is no point where I didn't believe in God. Uh, I think from the earliest age, for whatever reason, I honestly believed that not only did God exist, but for some reason, uh, not through my own personal value, but for some reason he loved me. And uh, so that much had come through to me in the early church experience that I had. Um, So I was raised with vacation, Bible school, Sunday school, church, uh, uh, going to church and Sunday school every Sunday morning and learning the stories and all the things that I think most Baptists experience um, uh, in their Christian walk. But as uh, it, it a catalyst, it's interesting. Um, I it, It's hard to explain because I'm a storyteller and I love telling stories and I've always been interested in doing that, even from the youngest age. And it was actually a story, I think, that coalesced everything for me, everything I'd been learning at church, everything I'd learned in Sunday school, everything I understood about the Bible and the stories from the Bible. It was actually the book, The Greatest Story Ever Told, by Fulton Orsler, who, as it turns out, was Catholic author.
0: <laughs> um,
1: we had it in the house, and I remember reading it. I'm not even sure why I would have pulled it off the shelf to read it, and I might have been, I think I might have been in what for us would be 7th grade, um, you know, maybe 11 years old or something. But I had become a voracious reader, and so I began to read this. And when I got to the crucifixion scene, in that story in the way fulton orsler presented it i it's, it's as if that story brought together everything i had been taught and it was at the, a very deep level meaningful to me i was moved and i remember kneeling in my bedroom and praying i i mean it was God forgive me because I was the one who put your son on the cross and asking Jesus to forgive me. And I suppose that's a point where as best as I could process it, I had, uh, as evangelicals say, I accepted Jesus into my heart for real, even though I've been baptized. And I always already believed. So there's always that question of at what point does belief and faith quicken to a, a, a true reality? In the evangelical world, that's a bit fuzzy. You know, there are some evangelicals who say, yes, I remember the date when I accepted Jesus in my heart, and they have that. And then you have a C.S. Lewis who was on a journey and may or may not even be able to pick a specific date when everything came together. And he said, that's it, I am a Christian. And so for me, I I, I guess I'd say I, I had, maybe it was, I accepted Jesus as my savior, but it was another couple of years before I took on what it meant to do that. So it's like I accepted him as my savior, uh, but Lord of my life was a different thing. And it was two years, a couple of years later, I think I was in eighth grade, when uh, circumstances uh, put me in a situation and in a conversation with somebody who persuaded me that my Christian faith wasn't meant to be um Separate from how I behaved at school and how I acted with my friends and those kinds of things. And so the two events were significant for me, not only in terms of the reality of my relationship with Christ, but then understanding better what that relationship was supposed to mean in my everyday life.
0: I find that so interesting, so compelling that it was a a story, you know, that was in part that catalyst. And then you as a storyteller, that's such an interesting
1: uh, thing to note. (laughs) Well, and it's funny, it wasn't until my adult life, and actually my wife's sister mentioned it, we were talking about spiritual journeys, and I was marking kind of the key moments in my spiritual journey. And she was the one that noticed that for everyone that I seemed to have, There was a story attached to it, not my story, but something I was reading that helped bring it together or helped me to process it differently. And uh, so I was I was, you know, in my 40s before I even um, got that connection. (laughs) That's really
0: fascinating So, uh, up into high school then, uh, this can often be a time of great emotional and social and psychological turmoil, to say the least. And You know, I became an evangelical Christian out of a non-religious household in high school, so my own change, my own turmoil or conversion was largely positive. But I wonder then, you know, you became Christian, you say you're saved, had these experiences. What was your experience uh, like in high school as you began to mature maybe and perhaps even start to... Um, how you know makes more of your own decisions. What role did faith play in all this? And then uh, in in the same vein, is this when story writing and storytelling began to play a more important role in your life as well?
1: Well, actually, the storytelling side of it goes back to elementary school. i was I was drawing comic books and trying to tell stories and writing things, even when I was in elementary school. Uh, I wrote my first play, not really a play but I actually wrote what I consider my first play in fifth grade. And my teacher actually allowed us to put it on during recess one day. I mean, it was horrible, but <laughs> it was an initial an impulse for me. So that goes back. But, um, I mean, it's a great question because for me, um, I, was, I was a Jesus freak. And uh, so when I was in uh, junior high and into high school, I, um, my the youth group at my church, Grace Baptist Church in Bowie, was everything I think most people would wish a youth group to be. It was dynamic, it was vibrant, it was engaging, it was meaningful, and it kept me out of all kinds of trouble, I think. I it it helped for whatever its flaws and whatever my flaws, it helped me to stay more focused on my life as a Christian and discipleship and the things that I needed to focus on in my belief. So um, I was a bit weird. I mean, I think many of the kids in our group were weird in the sense that our whole morality was antithetical to the high school reality around us. So we were our own group, not a clique, because we engaged with everybody else at school – But in terms of our significant others, you know, our peer, the right kind of peer pressure, our youth group was it. So as I was in uh, throughout my whole school life, it was more church based than it was school based, you know, so to the degree that. A church reunion of the youth group is, is actually more important to me than, than a high school reunion, even though it's nice to see those people. I knew things were weird, by the way. I have to say that (laughs) I remember going to, I think about like a 10th or 15th uh, high school reunion and the, I realized I was on the outs when it seemed like everybody was talking about rehab. And how many of them had gone to rehab because of their drug addictions and how their drugs had completely wrecked their lives and they were on their second and third marriages and kids scattered around. And I mean, this was this was a fairly normal middle class place. This was not some sort of an urban inner city thing, uh, not to stereotype that, but, you know, we're kind of, you know, middle class neighborhood, neighbor uh, schools and everything. And they're talking rehab and I cannot relate because I had nothing like that. Because when I looked at my life and when I think back on school, it was all church related. It was church activities, church events. My peer group was church. And so out of that, I think, um, as time went on, my desire to write for my church became a natural next step, um, For example, we had in the 1970s a group called the Jeremiah People. And it was a national touring group uh, headed by Chuck Bolte, by the way. So, Odyssey fans will know that name. And Chuck ran this group and they toured all over the United States. And the writing in their performance was uh, uh, musical but satirical. And they were doing the kinds of stuff that wasn't embarrassing. The writing was actually very sharp, very clever. Nothing embarrassing about what they were doing, and it influenced me to a great degree because I was watching that saying, that's really good. I think I'd like to write that sort of thing. And ultimately, that led into my writing for my church, those kinds of things, doing sketches and then doing one-night plays and doing full-length plays and that sort of thing. So it all was bundled together and integrated throughout my high school into college, Uh, There was no separation between uh, my aspirations to write, to be a storyteller, communicator in that respect, my life within the church, and then trying to find a job that would pay the bills while I did those things.
0: (laughs) Your story, I'm just listening to you there, and it's so fascinating because it's – runs very parallel to my own experience in high school with a group mm-hmm. of great Christian friends and that to me just underscores the importance of Catholic parishes, which sadly are 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 oftentimes, I think it's fair to say, lacking these vibrant youth groups um, through all kinds of different reasons, but I think of my own high school experience. You know, we were the kids who would head out after youth group uh, on a Friday night and sit in McDonald's for two or three hours until they closed oh, and yeah. were kicked out, just you know, yeah. debating finer points of theology.
1: <laughs> yeah, or just hanging out. I mean, it was a little bit of everything. There was the right kind of peer pressure for what our morality was supposed to be, relationally and otherwise. And uh, fairly, I mean, very conservative. Some would have called us... Um, I don't know, 1950s throwbacks, maybe, because <laughs> all the things I learned about dating and about, um, uh, how you relate to other people and honesty. I mean, all the, the foundation of my understanding of Christian morality was very practical in that respect. So yeah. And then the social side of it was there. Uh, we had our soap operas, as every youth group does to some degree about this, that or whatever. But my memory of the whole time there, was good and right and i yearned for my kids when they were in their teens to have the same and we were catholic by then and we never found it and all the parishes in our area we could never find anything like a thriving vibrant youth group like i experienced as an evangelical It, it a sad it is one of the very sad aspects of uh many many catholic parishes they just don't seem to have that for whatever reason.
0: Yeah, and I think this kind of a conversation just underscores the need for that. So, I mean, hopefully <laughs> those listening that are looking to get involved in something, hey, here's an, here's an idea for you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not for lack of trying. I think many of them do and I think a lot of churches struggle with trying to figure out how to do it. And and there are organizations um, that are, are trying to figure that out. Uh, Amazing Parish and other things like that that are are looking at ways to revitalize some of the more practical efforts of the church, getting the right people plugged in to connect with kids and stuff. But it's it's hard. I don't envy them, especially with all the changes over the last 10 years in our culture. I mean, it's revolutionary in some mm-hmm. respect. Absolutely. Well, I wonder at this point in your
0: life then uh, – in high school, what what role, if any, I wonder if the Catholic Church might have played? I I know for me, you know, I became a really enthusiastic, spirit-filled Christian out of a kind of a tumultuous local punk rock scene when I first became Christian, and Mm. the Catholics that I knew uh, from that scene in early high school were the kids who knew where to get the best drugs from, (laughs) Right. That was honestly my perspective. I don't perspective. know why I'm laughing.
1: That's horrible. But it's <laughs> well, you know, just, the irony of it is just beyond belief. It, it, but unfortunately, it, there was a similar thing with my kids.
0: Yeah, it, it was. And that was honestly my perspective on Catholic kids uh, compared to my Christian friends, where I've already described to you, we're the kids who are debating
1: theology at McDonald's. But, yeah. you know, uh, well, one of perspective was. i for that, by the way, uh, the example that I've, I've often used, my perception of Catholicism, which was not so much anti-Catholic as it was they were just some other sort of entity out there that somehow had a connection to Jesus, but it wasn't the connection that I understood. And the example I would use, in fact, if if we thought of Catholics at all, we actually thought of them as you saw them in The, the Godfather, the movie The Godfather. To us, the, the quintessential scene was while they're going through a baptismal ceremony and going through the words of renouncing Satan and all of his deeds, were intercutting with Al Pacino's characters, henchmen or going all over the town, all over town killing people. And in the Baptist view, as I was growing up was, well, whatever Catholicism is, it's kind of sad because number one, it's works based, whatever that means. And it is also hypocritical that basically people can live however they want to live. And as long as they go to confession before Sunday morning, then they can they'll go to mass and do that and then leave mass and then go off and live however they want to live. And so that for you to say that, you know, the the, the best drugs came from the Catholics reinforced this perception of whatever Catholicism is, it's not really touching their hearts or their behavior. It's just something that they claim that they are and then they will do. For various events, whether it's Sunday morning mass or baptism or weddings or whatever,
0: yeah, you know, these were the kids who'd show up in their in their Catholic school uniforms. You knew who they were, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know they'd they'd go to mass, uh, the sc- you know, the Catholic school mass. You know, where yeah. they where they had to go in high in high school,
1: <laughs> you know, yeah. but
0: th- that was about it. And then on the other side of the of the coin were my were me and my Christian friends, who were you know. Uh, intentionally, willingly going to a midweek Bible study on a Wednesday night, willingly going to church t- two times on a Sunday, you know, you know, and Saturday right. night and Friday night, and all these different things. Uh, so it was just such a juxtaposition for me, my perspective on on. It's like you say th- they were doing these things, but it wasn't in their heart. They didn't believe these things uh, in any right. real sense. They weren't saved. I'd say in that case, from from my perspective back then,
1: right. And yeah, by any definition in an evangelical uh, dictionary of salvation, yeah, that whatever it was, it wasn't salvation, it wasn't Christianity, it just seemed to have that name. And like most, I didn't know anything else about it. I didn't inquire. You know, all I knew was if I encountered somebody who professed to be Catholic, then, you know, I was duty bound to uh, win them to Jesus um, uh, evangelistically. But, um, I didn't actually know that many. I mean there were some in the neighborhood people that I would interact with but it was like I said it was some other thing. And uh, so at the time in my for a long long time you know up until well I don't want to jump ahead in the story but I just want to say that Catholicism my understanding of history of of Christian history was not even part of the equation. And that—that that is a, a big thing. Uh, as I've quoted Richard Foster, misquoted Richard Foster, you know, most Protestants don't know anything about uh, Christian history at all. They think there was the first century with Jesus, this blip called the Reformation, and then Billy Graham. And that's as much as we need to know because if it's just me and my Bible, I don't need to know anything in between my Bible and where I am right now, technically speaking. So, history is not even important. (laughs) Yeah,
0: and I hear you. That's underscored certainly in my story as well. So, what was next in your life? Where did you go after high school, both in your faith life
1: and with your writing, which seems to be quite tied together? Right. Well, what I continued to do, I stayed in Bowie. And I was at Grace Baptist Church, and we had a thriving arts program, which seems a bit weird for a Baptist church, but that's our pastor and his daughter, they were all very arts-minded, and our pastor was very evangelistically minded. So for him, if, I don't know, kind of contemporary musicals will get people into the church and to hear the gospel, good. If you're using electric guitars and drums, that's fine. Um, If if we're doing regular type musicals or as I, I began to write sketches and plays and stuff and we were doing arts festivals every year. And, and so I'm kind of honing the craft of the writing, uh, thankfully through this church. And so post high school, as I went into college, uh, during my college years, there were times when I was at church uh, more than I was at college and, Really, college was just something I felt like I needed to do and get the degree, whereas my focus of attention was on what I was doing at the church artistically. So really, for the several years after that, I was um, heavily involved at church, writing, and then getting published. This is in the early 80s, and nobody was uh, was doing drama. At the at what we at the level that we were trying to do it every time I went looking for sketches, everything I found seemed to be copyrighted 1952 or the 50s. Nobody was doing contemporary drama, except the Jeremiah people, and uh, and it certainly wasn't out there to use. So I was writing it, and in many ways that helped shape. My writing style gave me the experience I needed because I was seeing this stuff on stage. I'd write it and then we'd perform it. And then I could actually see what it was like. And then Samuel French, Baker's Plays, which was part of Samuel French, began to publish my stuff. I was directed to them first. And then later on, um, uh, there was Lilliness in, in its, in its golden age. Uh, was very aggressive in their play publishing program, sketches and such. So in that whole 80s period, the early 80s, I'm doing a lot of writing, I'm getting published, and it's getting out there and there seemed to be a lot of energy. Um, but things changed for me personally in in uh, well basically around 85. And I've told the story that if you ask me late 84, what I thought I would be doing with my life, I would have told you, well, I think God has called me to be a writer. Um, I'm going to have to have a real job while I do it, but, um, I'm going to be a writer. I write stuff for the church. There's always a spirituality to what I write. I've actually tried to write secularly and take Christianity out of it. I just simply can't do it. Um, uh, it's just too interwired in what I do. And, uh, but then, um, to get very personal for a moment, my father committed suicide uh, in 1985. And that kind of pulled the rug out from under everything. In fact, it, there was a sequence of events. There was sort of in January, my my dad had uh, killed himself. And then in the spring, the company I was working for in Maryland that was subsidizing <laughs> subsidizing my church work, basically, uh, the, that company was bought out, moved to New York, so I lost my job in Maryland in Bowie, had to find that. And meanwhile, I'd become friends with Chuck Bolte and uh, Jeremiah people who really liked the writing I was doing. And he told me to move to California to work with him in California at the with the Jeremiah people and what was the bigger group, the Continental Ministries. And it was something I would never, ever have thought to do or wanted to do. But circumstances in 1985 drove me to conclude and decide to do something. I just was unfathomable for me. I just never would have thought to do it a few months before. And I actually agreed to go to um, California to work with Chuck. And uh, it changed everything. I mean, you know, those pivot points that you have in your life, that was for me huge. Leaving my family because my family was pretty much Washington, D.C. based, leaving my support of Grace Baptist Church and all my friends there and to drive across country to this area where I've only knew a few people. It was I look back on it now thinking it was pretty adventurous and maybe even crazy. And yet, in so many ways, it changed everything and sent me into a whole new directions.
0: So where were you? I mean, that's a that's a pretty uh, major catalyst for change, to say the least. Where were you? Where was your faith life? Obviously, you were writing stuff for the church, so faith was central for you. Uh, right. What did all that do to your to your faith experience? To where you were uh, as a Christian?
1: Well, it's funny. It didn't. Challenge it. In fact, in many ways, it was all bundled up. There was no moment, you know, when I was questioning my faith or whatever. I was rolling along with it. My faith was what it was as, as an evangelical, as a Baptist in terms of my study of the Bible and all the things that I did. I actually went to a seminary for a very short time and, um, wondered how I might use my writing in the context of ministry. And, um, was doing that, of course, through the church, my local church. But, uh, it, it's, it's funny. My faith was not shaken by any of this at any, in any deep level. It, it, I just, in fact, it was critical to how I tried to make my decisions, whether I should stay in Maryland or go or what I should do. And, um, eventually, Uh, of course then the job I took was with a Christian ministry, it was an evangelical Christian ministry, Continental Ministries, Jeremiah people, you know, so actually it was a merger of of aspirations, it was like well you know, I'm actually going to work for a ministry as their like communications officer, I'll write for them and while I'm writing for them on a kind of a corporate level I'm also going to be working with them on the dramas and writing scripts for the drama group, so it was a merger, an initial merger of things, so in that respect, things were good. What I did not anticipate was the change the degree of change that would come um, by coming from my Baptist background and and I admit I was naive I honestly thought as a Baptist that this is what all right standing clear thinking Christians believed in terms of their understanding of scripture and how a Christian behaves. In the most practical ways, you know, it, it's just to me, I thought, oh, well, this is the way everybody is who believes and professes the name of Christ. So I get to Southern California and find out that is not true at all. Uh, the diversity of opinions and of views and of lifestyles in Southern California, even in 1985, had me a bit bewildered. I was, I, I suddenly felt like, you know, this, backwards boy. I mean, I'm from Washington, D.C. It's a cosmopolitan area. But I get out there, and honestly, I'm just sort of this yokel looking around wild-eyed and wide-eyed at, at how Christians profess their faith, how they live their faith, that sort of thing. It was a completely different world for me. And in many respects, that threw me into a, a little bit, a bit of turmoil, because I think I wanted to replicate out there my Grace Baptist experience and couldn't find it. And not only could I not find it in that respect, but then I was having to roll along with with the the non-denominational evangelical reality as it was in the mid to late 80s. And um, during this time, I had met my wife. And uh, or a woman that would become my wife, and then we got married. And we we got married, and I we moved into. And she grew up. Uh, she's English, and she grew up Baptist in England. Though her Baptist church was actually a bit charismatic, so which is a bit weird for American Baptists. They're they're usually they're not, but over there they were. So we we both come from a similar background and and understanding of the faith. But we're in Southern California. We're living there, and you know, we got married in '88, and we go into this wilderness period. That's all I could think to call it. Um, we couldn't really find a church that we connected to. They were denominational, non-denominational, and but very um, well, the seeker movement had begun. You, you, do you know what I mean by the seeker? movement in the 80s yeah, I I mean, know, yeah. and I can
0: and I can picture what you because I mean in, in our, our own story my 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 future wife and myself we're, were friends looking for a looking for a church yeah we and we encountered in a, in a similar way a, a seeker type church uh, yeah. as one of our first churches we tried when we were uh, away at university and and, and yeah we kind of it's an outward facing church right which is looking to draw people in and uh, but not necessarily feed, we'd say, those that were there. Is that kind of what you're uh, articulating?
1: Oh, yeah, exactly that. I mean, it was so evangelistic. Everything had moved into we've got to get people in. And Willow Creek, um, one of the main proponents of it, um, uh, out of uh, Illinois, I think, um, years later they would actually do a study and acknowledge that the efforts pretty much brought people in but didn't, Do anything with them once they were in. They put them into little groups and they did a lot of things. But as a friend of mine said, it was a mile wide and an inch deep. It didn't actually, it got people in, but it did not get them any deeper in their faith and in their walk with Christ. In fact, arguably it was very consumeristic that the effort to make the church or to dismantle the church. From being anything like a church in order to attract people in, using all of the latest marketing gimmicks to get them there, to try to entice them through the door, um, created an unintentional superficiality. Um, I remember at the time feeling like churches had become spiritual 7 Elevens. You know, it's like you could just kind of go in and and shop around and get what you wanted at the level that you wanted it and walk out again. And that was it. Um, and I was puzzling over this at the time. It, it was, I kept thinking, and again, Catholicism, the ancient church, there is nothing in my mind about this. Uh, it's not even on the radar. And yet later I would realize that what I was beginning to expect from the church was a certain transcendence that it i kept thinking the church is 2000 years old why are they doing all of these kind of superficial gimmicks to get people through the door we've got something more than that that is 2000 years of of understanding and relationship with christ and everything and yet we're floundering i mean we just don't even know what we're doing and uh, I remember feeling disillusioned to some degree. It didn't, not on a personal level. My faith was was what it was, but I began to detach. It was so much it was so much easier to go to breakfast on a Sunday morning than to go to church. I mean, that's what it was becoming. You know, I'm in LA thinking uh, I'm, I'm enjoying the LA Times, reading that on a Sunday morning with over breakfast, than than even trying to figure out where we want to go to church and. Um, I remember we even went past – one one morning we – actually it was an evening. We went past and I looked over at this Catholic church and I kept thinking, okay, I know they've been around a long time. Something's going on in there. I wonder what. And the funny part is my wife and I actually pulled in. We She said, let's go look. And um, so we actually walked into the church. And, of course, the unfamiliarity of that, just uh, uh, the overall look with all the statues and the altar and everything. But we walked in on what was their, I guess, their Sunday evening service or something. And and you had acoustic guitars and a kind of Michael Row the boat ashore sort of thing going on. And we turned around and walked out again. Um, so we didn't actually get to experience anything resembling a Catholic church at that moment. But that was... I think an indication. Does this make sense? It was an indication mm-hmm. of of where where my heart was going and what I felt like I was looking for, but I didn't even know I was looking for it. Well it's funny
0: that you mentioned the guitars. I uh I had on uh now uh when this episode airs, it'll be about a month or so back, but uh an episode with uh Father Blake uh Brighton Uh, Britain, who who writes on some of these Vatican II reforms and what and what the Church intended when it when it examined its liturgy and its and its place in the world back in the '60s at the at the Second Vatican Council and what actually uh, the fallout was, how that was interpreted, and and it sounds like you know sadly enough, what you encounter was the seeker movement within the Catholic Church that was trying to make that ancient faith more appealing and ended up in a lot of cases just simplifying it and and watering it down. That's kind of a little ironic footnote there that the movement you were, you didn't like an evangelical church. Well, yeah, it existed in the Catholic church too. and, And equally kind of pushed
1: you, pushed back against you in that context too. Right. And, and it's, and this kind of dovetails in, it's interesting because, and I never did find, we never found in Southern California Uh, the church that we settled into and felt at home in and and again without even being able to define at that stage of my spiritual development what at home even meant um i i knew there was no going back to my grace baptist church experience i learned that it was unique in so many ways and to replicate it in many ways is unfair to the churches that i kept going into I, i mean i stopped trying to find another one of those experiences. And yet I was aware that I was looking for some other kind of experience that would be deeper, would penetrate a little bit beyond where I was spiritually. And what then happened is another move. And it's, it's funny if, if story is sort of related to it, I think upheaval is another part of it for me. Um, I was working for Focus on the Family in Southern California. Uh, Chuck Bolte had gone there to become an executive producer in the audio dramas. I had begun to freelance for them in 1986 because of him. He brought them to my attention. So I began to write for them and then they were developing this thing called Adventures in Odyssey, though it was originally Odyssey USA for diehard fans who remember that. Um, And they wanted to hire me and I was hesitant and then Chuck Bolte took a job with them and said, well, I'm going and I'm going to hound you until you come along. So just decide now that you're going to work for them. And so I did and I got married and then we we were working in Pomona with them. But Along the way, I think I was so unsettled about living in Southern California because the whole time I was there, I kept feeling like I was stationed there, you know, not that I was living there. And so I I was okay with the idea of maybe going freelance and moving. And I had fallen in love with England um, at the time that I'd fallen in love with Elizabeth, who became my wife. And we were married over there, and I had decided – um, I think she would have been happy to stay in Southern California. But I, I said, no, let's move to England. I can freelance from there. You know, let's go. And I've got opportunities there to write. So we moved to England in 19, uh, well, end of 1990 and uh, lived in the town near where she grew up. and I, And I loved it. I've lived in England twice and loved living there. But we went on the church hunt again. We kept, it's like, well, we're here, but where are we going to go to church? And we were having a similar experience. It seemed like the evangelical churches were all a certain thing, much like Southern California, doing variations of the same things. And there was one Sunday we were driving past. We were in Virginia water near Ascot where we lived. And there was this church. It was a Gothic style or Victorian style church. Anglican, and I was aware of Anglicanism to a degree, but we kept seeing cars in the parking lot, and it just looked like it was thriving. So we determined that we would go. And one Sunday morning, we went and we walked through, and it's what some might call an Anglo Catholic church. It was definitely a high bells and smells type church experience. And I remember going in and sitting down and we're going through this liturgy, which was more Catholic than I ever would have known and felt like I'd come home. I just said, that's this. I never in a million years would have thought this is what I was looking for, but it was what I was looking for. And I said, this is it. This is this. I mean, it immediately clicked for me, uh, the liturgy. And so That was then uh, a key – another pivot point where uh, I then shifted from what what is a traditional evangelical understanding of reality into this other thing um, that was I would call Anglicanism even though it overlapped then with my experience in the Episcopal Church in America. But really I, I would have identified myself as Anglican at heart loving you know the mass and as they did it and their prayer books and I, it just took me 500 years backwards in a way um because to understand anglicanism then i suddenly had to understand where it came from which then took me 500 years backwards into history which was further than i think i'd ever been
0: so it began a time travel experience for you.
1: Yeah, to some degree. I mean, it's just funny because now you're not reading. It's not just me and my Bible. Now suddenly I am being introduced to all these other writers and to even try to explain to my family and friends what this whole Anglican thing was and how it came out of, you know, Henry the Eighth. But what was that about? And uh, I then had to at least study enough of the history to, to give a defense for my decision to do it. And, of course, I wanted to know that anyway. I had to create a theological understanding to even justify in my own mind why it was the right thing to do and, and to become. So uh, it, that, all of that then helped me in ways that I wouldn't understand until much later.
0: Well, and this, I think, certainly informed some of your, your writing. I mentioned my, my very favorite Father Gilbert mystery series. How did they, um what was it like, I wonder, what was your experience working for uh, an evangelical uh, radio drama organization and uh, then being an Anglican in, in the midst of all this? How was that experience and how did that inform kind of your thinking and, and your writing?
1: Well, it shaped a lot. I mean, when it comes to my work at Focus on the Family, as I was there, I know the Adventures and Odyssey audience well enough that I wasn't ever going to do anything that I thought would offend them or, uh, you know, work against their understanding uh, as evangelicals. So I had enough of that, of my own experience, to be able to frame the work I was doing. But when we moved into the radio theater reality – uh beyond adventures in honesty we began to do the radio theatre series well one of the first things we did christmas carol which we recorded in england and of course i wrote i adapted it and then had to dig into its history and and uh then chronicles of narnia which i had already read and i was already becoming more and more um, attuned to C.S. Lewis. My appreciation for him even before becoming Anglican was huge, maybe even more so because I had moved into the Anglican reality. And so all of that is weighing into um, influences, approaches to what I would write, themes, and how I would handle themes, never overtly working against an evangelical sensibility. In fact, I think it worked hand in hand. But with a different kind of uh, spirituality, a different understanding of the spiritual life and the many things out there that help us, that go beyond just reading scripture. But when you've got a great prayer book, and beautifully written prayer book, as the Church of England had, and you have all of these things, uh, it definitely shaped my writing. Uh, The character of Jack Allen, to some degree, reflected some of what I was learning in his gentler sensibilities um, and onward. So all of that weighs into it. And then when we began to develop some new ideas for the radio theater series, beyond the classics that we were uh, dramatizing, I had had this idea about this Scotland Yard detective who becomes an Anglican priest and had been developing that on my own and then actually mentioned it to Dave Arnold, um, producer and We talked it over and couldn't come up with a reason not to do it. And even as we vetted it through the focus on the family system, uh, everybody seemed keen for us to do it. It seemed like it, it hit a good middle ground and was exploring some things that would make for good storytelling and good thematic explorations. And so they said, let's go. And, you know, we did nine mysteries over the years with this bizarre this bizarre idea really i mean i look back on it now and i'm like a lot of people and think it is pretty remarkable that they greenlit that <laughs> but i think focus on the family sensibilities were shifting and changing um i wouldn't say away from evangelicalism but maybe away from a degree of fundamentalism because at the point when we did chronicle chronicles of narnia And you have references to a witch and to magic and things like that, which in a fundamentalist reality, that's a no-go. You don't even talk about that, uh, let alone dramatize it in a way that almost seems positive, not in a Harry Potter sense, but in the way that Lewis framed it in the world he created. Um, Yeah, it was was, was significant, but I think we were on such a gentle movement uh, artistically that we didn't realize how significant it was as we were going. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of funny how that played out over the years. Um, and, and that's and so it reflected my Anglican sensibilities, but not to any degree defying evangelical sensibilities or trying to proselytize or trying to win anybody over to another point of view. It just seemed like another angle, you know, for good storytelling.
0: Yeah, very much so. So, I've had a handful of Anglican friends, some I've known for a very long time, uh, and they run the gamut, so to speak. You know, some would describe themselves Anglo-Catholic or High Anglican, and some are on the very, for lack of a better word, the liberal side of the very large and accommodating faith tradition. Uh, As an Anglican, then, um, what made you begin to question this Anglican faith that you had found and began to love so much?
1: Well, see, and this is – it's funny you'd mention that because I learned the hard way uh, about the streams running through Anglicanism because we lived in England in 1991. We attended Christ Church of Virginia Water, and it was a great experience and helped solidify the direction I was going and my interest in and love of liturgy and where does it all come from. and 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 to me, Anglicanism was the right middle ground between – uh, the Reformation and what I understood to be Catholicism. Again, I'm thinking ignorantly because I didn't study Catholicism. I just basically accepted it as it was interpreted through Anglicanism. And so we moved back to uh, Focus on the Family, moved from California to Colorado. And they asked me to come off the freelance thing and come back on staff. And the circumstances allowed that we were okay to make the move back from England to America. We were over there for the year. And at that stage of our lives, we had stuff, but nothing like the amount of boxes that we have now. And so the move wasn't that traumatic. We moved to Colorado and I began working on staff with focus on the family again. And then it was a question of finding a church here. And fortunately a good friend said, well, I know what you're looking for, and I know that you're afraid that the Episcopal Church is notoriously liberal, but there is a church downtown Colorado Springs, Grace Episcopal Church, that is is conservative, and it's run by a good guy, and it it is very traditional Anglican. And so we went there, and that's where we attended for, off and on for 15 years, and the only reason I say off and on is because we actually moved back to England again in 1997, we were there for three years, from 97 to 2000, and the reason I say it's interesting is, again, it was much like my Grace Baptist experience, where I felt like, oh, this is what all Christians believe, you know, what we believed as Baptists, and then I've come to the rude awakening that that's not true, well, my experience at Grace Church in Colorado Springs, it was so traditional and so theologically thought out. The teaching there was great that I went, this is Anglicanism. This is what it is. This is the way it looks. This is what it's supposed to feel like. Um, I don't know what else there is, but this is it. And it was kind of Anglo-Catholic and We studied the works of, uh, you know, Hooker and all the, uh, the Anglican theologians. We understood history. We discussed the, um, what's the 39 articles? I mean, we discussed all these things and I became, I think, pretty well, um, attuned to Anglican thinking as I understood it. Well, then we moved back to England in 97 and we go to what I think is a traditional Anglican church. And then I begin to see the change. I see how things are different. So the more traditional one isn't as traditional as the one I knew in Colorado. So then we wind up at another one in the same town because we have friends there. And it's even more evangelical. It's only marginally Anglican. It's more of an evangelical experience. And so I'm beginning to see this. And and sorry, it's long-winded. But I was on this church council local church council, and a, a directive had come from the Archbishop of Canterbury saying, asking a question about if children are baptism, baptized. I mean, when children are baptized, technically they should be able to take communion after they're baptized, but the church was holding off because they said, we want them to understand what it is before they take it. And so they put this question out to all the local parishes. What do you think about this? And I, I'm in this meeting and we're discussing something this significant and weighty that I actually said out loud, I don't understand how we can make this decision. I mean, shouldn't we be going to Anglican theology and exploring how this should play out in terms of what is decided? And the people on the council laughed at me. They laughed. And our vicar actually said, oh, dear boy, I had no idea you were um, such a, a, an optimist, an idealist. That's what he called me, an idealist, that I dared think that there was something foundational called Anglican theology that could be used in this discussion. And I was bewildered. I was bewildered. And that's when I then had discussions where people said, look, you, you got to understand the Anglican church has multiple streams running through it from from a kind of a a fundamentalist, evangelical, middle of the road, all the way through to progressive liberal. They're all weaving their way through, and and somehow the church holds it in all intention. Uh, And each parish then determines what it is, but they still have this unified understanding, I guess. Well, I say all of that to set up then the answer to the question for real, which was, The Episcopal Church in America began to implode earlier in this century over uh, many of the issues that we're still wrestling through now as a culture. But one was, a key thing, was a priest who had determined he was gay left his wife and children, still held on to his position as a priest, and more than that, was then nominated to become a bishop. So this is years ago, but you had an openly gay man now becoming a bishop in the Episcopal Church. And it was tearing the church apart in America. But it was rippling out, obviously, around the world, too, because many, many other uh, branches of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, uh, had to deal with this and are still dealing with it. And basically... I was rolling along with this, trying to figure out the Baptist boy in me was going, this is not right. The Episcopal side of me was saying, well, wait a minute. If we have continuity with our bishops and the church makes this decision for itself, do they not have the authority to do that? And then that led to the most one of the most important questions I think I had ever asked in my life. And that was, so really, who has the authority to interpret scripture and establish doctrine? And in a way, I never had to ask it before. But now, with everything facing the Episcopal Church, I had to. Who has the authority to do that? And that was the trigger for me. Then uh, another pivot point in terms of where my life would go. Yeah,
0: I suppose it's a really interesting thing to, on one hand, come from a tradition, I mean, like I did as well, that would have seen the Bible as the sole authority and would have said, okay, all these things, you know, this question is settled.
1: Well, that was the key thing, because (laughs) the authority of Scripture was not the issue. I mean, everybody was invoking sort of the authority, well, many of the Episcopal bishops were not. In fact, I actually heard one say, well, we understand sexuality so much better now than— they did in the first century, which threw me. It's like, really? We we know more about sexuality than Jesus, the Apostle Paul? I mean, uh, I, I, that's not lining up. But to your point, and that was my point, the authority of Scripture is kind of a common denominator. It always comes down to interpretation. So who has the authority to interpret? Is it me and my Bible, you and your Bible? And if we don't agree, fine. Is it domination? I mean, I realized... The Reformation and everything that came out of that uh, that revolution was all about interpretation, and so for the first time, I actually had to ask that question for myself. And then, well, for me, I had to basically say, "All right, I don't like the arrogance of our current age, where we dismiss we do think we know so much more than everybody who came before us." I want to go back to the early church and find out what the early church believed and why it believed it. I wasn't thinking Catholic. I was just thinking ancient church. And so what did the generation after Jesus think was true about Christianity? What does that look like? And that sent me back. Of course, I went to scripture first. So I'm rereading the gospels, kind of taking, I think my time as an Anglican helped me relax a little bit in terms of a a brutally literal interpretation. You know what I mean? And so I had relaxed enough to say, okay, I'm going to look at this with fresh eyes. I want to see what Jesus said. I want to see – and then the book of Acts, which was even more important to me – and not more important than Jesus, but more important to understand what the early church did and why it did it and what it seemed to believe going into then the actual letter writing uh, and the writings that we see in the New Testament. And that really was the turning point. Scripture, funny enough, was uh, was the key thing that I used that then led me to go, okay, wait a minute. It's apostolic. It really is apostolic. And I had begun to meet with uh, an Eastern Orthodox priest locally who was happy. He was a former a former evangelical, became an Orthodox priest. And he was – so we could talk. We were meeting up and talking. And and some Catholics and some – in particular, a couple of Catholic priests came into my life, um, Father John Bertunik being one of them. So I could have these discussions and ask intelligent people uh, the questions that I needed to ask. And once it became apostolic, once I said, well, it's the apostles, so now if they're handing down, where is that represented now? Which, of course, points either to the Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church. And as I then weighed those out, I ultimately came to the conclusion that apostolic continuity and succession is playing itself out through the Roman Catholic Church and if that's if that's the case then that's where I need to be.
0: I think it's interesting uh, looking at the Anglican angle uh, you know a bit of a waypoint maybe on this journey into the into the Catholic Church because they would have had this tradition that, uh, that certainly appealed to you in a, in the midst of a seeker uh, church kind of culture. But then that tradition is is one that, as far as it can be called apostolic, and I have uh, Catholic, uh, Anglican friends who, who refer to this thing called the apostolic tradition, but then that same tradition allows them kind of to vote on these new issues and and change what would have been traditional church teaching uh, taught for all time on all kinds of things like you've already described. So they had a tradition, but that tradition was uh, almost a tradition of being able to uh, choose their own adventure in a sense.
1: Yeah, it's sort of, some people would use that sort of authority as a license, a license for whatever they wanted to be, which then reminds me of the evangelical reality and a progressive reality and the dynamic as i have as i've learned as a catholic of the timeless truths of the catholic church being in integrated and interpreted in a timely manner so you've got timeless and timely every generation is playing out its its reality um, and trying to figure out well what does it mean and how do we do this and how do we apply these these timeless principles to this specific situation in our time and place. you know and that to me is the bumper car reality of history and of the Catholic faith moving through history. But one thing we have though is is a foundation of a- apostolic understanding as as we have in the Magisterium and and all of that. I mean I, I get as nervous as anybody is there are times when uh, the American Catholic Church, begins to resemble or I begin to see movements towards and phraseology of Episcopalian talk. You know, I'm beginning to rerun certain uh, things that remind me of the dissolution of the Episcopal church in America, which um, uh, has been in this implosion over the last, you know, 15 years or, or longer really, but let's just say the last 10 to 15 years. And so it it's it's interesting because we do have progressive elements in the Catholic Church. And yet what we have is not just scripture, because if we say it's just scripture, then you're gonna have the interpretation question all over again, and it's a bit of a free-for-all. So when we have the continuity of the apostolic authority, that gives us the right touch point that helps us from drifting too far from from a foundation or from being tethered to the truth in the right kinds of ways as we try to apply it to our time and place.
0: Yeah, I wrestled as an evangelical with some of these emerging uh, social issues around uh, same-sex marriage and those kinds of things, uh, even long before the idea of gender identity and and these kind of even even more emergent social issues. But I wrestled back then and I remember meeting with a couple of evangelical friends and even some pastors at the time to try and wrestle with these things. And and all we were left to do is... And this really, uh, um, lays bare the, the challenge of, of Protestantism, right? All we were left to do kind of was to, to look at our scriptures and then look at people interpreting those scriptures and to try and determine who we thought, you know, individually sometimes, never mind as a community, who we thought made the most sense out of those things. And that was kind of a shocking revelation that that was all we had.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean and that's the thing. I mean it just keeps circling around in the evangelical reality or when you take when you take I want to say Protestant thinking to its ultimate result. I mean the end result of of Protestantism is what we are now seeing, which is the free for all of personal interpretation of scripture. And to the degree that again in the in the evangelical world I was increasingly see seeing evangelicals Turning the church into an optional extra. It's like, well, I don't really need it. You know, I don't have to go. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I mean, it's a it's a, a form of gnosticism, but it's um it it was increasing, and that was the thing for me was was on the interpretation side. It just kept saying, I just can't fathom that this is what Jesus intended when he prayed for us to be one as he and the Father are one. That's not just wishful thinking. So what is that and where are we now? And, and of course, as I study history and I, I get tickled by the fact that Luther, you know, who advocated sort of a personal interpretation, got really annoyed when his students were interpreting scripture differently than he was. You know, there's it, it an irony to that. So the free for all thing was distressing to me. And I know there's always the tension that's going to go on within the Catholic Church. Uh, as we, as we move on and as we have this bumper car thing happening, um, but I keep going back to the apostolic reality and clinging to that in many respects as what Jesus intended. He set it into motion and that's what he wanted us to do.
0: Yeah, and I suppose the interesting thing is, no matter how we can uh, debate these things within the church, I wrote an an article once describing this, and I think it was titled something like, Why I Love uh, All This Catholic Infighting, I think was the title, kind of provocative. but uh, it's ultimately uh, arguing and debating and discussing within the church, which, if we believe what Jesus said about the church, it, it, it was... It was a church that has the authority to have these conversations, but then make a decision at the end of the day, right?
1: Right, and that's the thing. I mean, when you go through history and you see many, whether it's Augustine or Thomas Aquinas, and you go through uh, the the depth of thought that they engaged in at various points in history. I mean, when you look at 2,000 years of Catholic history and Catholic thought, the bumper car reality is there too, as as in their times and places, men wrote in different ways about different things and exploring, there's this exploration. But the exploration is possible because we have the touch point, because we have the foundation, because we're tethered or anchored to something solid that allows us to go off a little way to explore ideas, but still get pulled back, still not get so far that we are adrift in relativism or in personal interpretation alone or any of those kinds of things. Um, and so to me, it, to become Catholic was freeing because suddenly I realized I don't have to – this sounds like a crude way to put it – but i I don't have to have that level of authority. I can now – yield to the authority that Jesus himself put in place. And so, uh, in fact, becoming Catholic, the yielding to that, once I realized, well, that's what apostolic succession is, that's where it rests, this is where the truth of Christ resides fully, in its fullness, not pieces of it. Um, my phrase, by the way, when I became Catholic was, I will embrace all that I can and accept what I struggle to embrace because some doctrines are uncomfortable for me. Some things um, I still wrestle with, but I was able to relax. I was able to say, I yield to that authority, not to shut my brain down, but to actually say, now I can work with that authority to understand and to go through not only scripture but 2000 years of writing and thought and insight that go beyond me it's not about me i guess is ultimately what i was i was concluding and it was a relief for it not to be about me i got
0: to say, that, that is so fascinating. Just last week, uh, I had a conversation with a, a, a Catholic theologian who's written a, a great book about God. Um, yeah. Actually, she works at the Augustan Institute, Dr. Elizabeth Klein, your colleagues. We just talked, I didn't realize she was a convert until midway through our conversation, but she described the same thing you're describing, which I have tried to describe so many times before in my in my own writing for my blog and in this podcast and and you actually use the same word that I often use and that word is relax you know yeah. when i became catholic out of this uh struggling to interpret um my my bible and why did why is my interpretation different than somebody else's if there's like a plain sense meaning why can't we find this yeah you know reading different theologians and and the you know i i couldn't find well, where's the authority but then When I found the Catholic Church, and as you describe, this 2,000 years of writing and history and the idea of the magisterium and this authority given to the Pope and the bishops by Christ himself, once I found this, I... Was able to relax into the arms of this tradition and no longer have to be my own authority. Just like you said, I, you know, right, you know, and and just last week I heard this from Dr. Klein as well. You know, this is this is a a common theme I'm finding in the people that I'm speaking to. This idea of relaxing, or and and it's not an an abdication of our of our um, uh, using our brain or our own, um, you know. Need to read the scriptures and interpret these things, right? But as you describe, it's this—it's this, uh, a freedom—a f- a freedom. Well, there's that- a
1: freedom in the fact that if I'm having a, a conversation with someone on a contentious subject, homosexuality or something, whatever it is, one of any one of the number of social issues that we have today, uh, rather than just throw out my opinion, I can say, "Well, the Catholic Church teaches this." Now if somebody says well and you believe that and i would say yes the catholic church teaches it i accept it and then they can ask well but why do you do that well then i can go into that explanation but in some respects it disarms the battles that we have as evangelicals over individual interpretation because i mean we we've seen the evangelical community is fractured over a lot of these issues as as some have they they still call themselves evangelicals. Well, the funny thing is, of course, evangelicals have a hard time at defining what are the characteristics of evangelicalism. They Then they get into an argument over that. But to be able to answer questions without necessarily having to give a defense of my interpretation of Scripture and get into that battle, uh, it's easy for me to say, well, I'm Catholic and here's what the church teaches. And that's it. It's sort of done. We can continue to discuss it, but it's no longer on me. And maybe that's a cop-out. Maybe it's me being lazy. But it's it, the weight of it is not on me to have to argue or justify everything that I believe in my personal interpretation. I can now, in many respects, relax and defer to greater minds than mine who have figured these things out. And, and have presented them, you know, ultimately uh, what the doctrine is, not just the exploration, but what was concluded as final doctrine. So, um, uh, And that's, I love that. It's much like confession. It's much like, you know, you sin as an evangelical, and you're going, okay, Jesus, I know. If, if you're of one stripe, you're saying, well, Jesus has already forgiven me for this, but I still need to apologize, and so I'm sorry for that. And you can kind of circle that drain, Whereas uh, for me, the beauty of confession, the sacrament of confession, to actually sit across from someone and to be able to confess, receive, and have a physical experience of, of engagement and absolution and what that means to me, uh, as a Catholic is, is so hard to explain and yet so vital because now I don't feel like I'm alone. Uh In my sin, do you know what I mean, even though we're taught as evangelicals, oh, yeah, but you can go straight to God and just pray, "Hey, forgive me," and you know, and He will because you know he will, but there's some other dynamic that has become more precious to me in not going through those same motions and the same um again, like I said, circling the drain of my sin, but bringing it to the sacrament in that sacrament and Having a different experience, which doesn't mean that I'm always getting on the other side of my sins. It just means that now I I, I can feel and and experience in a different way, in a more I don't know, meaningful way um, uh, what forgiveness is and what that ought to be and penance and all of those things. I, I don't know that I said that very well, but um, that was another example.
0: Well, Paul, it's been great chatting with you so far. And I think I'll pause the conversation uh, right here for part one of our interview. It's been fantastic. Where should people go to find out more about what you're up to these days?
1: Okay, well, a lot of the work I'm doing is with the Augustine Institute. So I can point everyone to augustineinstitute.org, which is quite a long address, but uh We'll, we'll have a lot of the information about the books that I'm creating, uh, The Adventures of Nick and Sam, and The Virtue Chronicles, and then the audio dramas that we're doing. And I think there's like a subcategory called uh, airtheater.org, which links into that. It's airtheater.org, and that'll talk about those audio dramas.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, that's fantastic. God bless you. God bless your family and the fantastic work you're doing uh with your, your, your dramas, your radio theater stuff, your writing, the fantastic work you're doing for the Church. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Cordial Catholic. If you want immediate access to Part 2 of my fantastic interview with Paul McCusker, please head over to patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Even $1 a month gets you access to a special behind-the-scenes podcast, access to bonus content, and early access to Part 2 episodes like this one with Paul McCusker. Those who can give $5 or more a month are automatically entered into draws for free books handpicked by me. And friends, all that money goes back into supporting this show to help me with the mission of evangelization, which underpins this whole thing. I cannot do it without you. So thank you so much to everyone already sponsoring this show. If you want to give a one-time donation, head over to paypal.me slash Catholic. Those donations help as well, and I am very grateful. I'm praying for all of you, and please pray for me and this show as well. Please subscribe to or follow this show wherever you can. Please review it. Those help to push the podcast out to new people. The website is thecordialcatholic.com for show notes, for links to Paul McCusker's website and his incredible writing and audio drama work. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, the Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and cordialcatholic at gmail.com is my email. Talk to you soon guys, and God bless.